As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt. Today's episode is the second part of our John Stott centenary discussion, which was first recorded last April during the celebrations to mark what would have been his 100th birthday. If you haven't yet listened to last week's part one, strongly recommend you pause this and go back to that one first. But do then come back here as we continue to have our conversation about Stott's legacy, his ministry strategy, but also think about some of the complexities of lionising evangelical leaders in this age of scandal. Thanks. So we've kind of skimmed over very briefly, and like I said before, there's much more detail on some of this, on some of the other resources and sermons and talks that we put on the website of those three kind of headings that you've pulled out from from your experience of Start, his life, his ministry, of kind of listening and dialogue, being salt and light and incarnational mission. Um, I guess what I wanted to ask is, you know, it's now been 60 years since some of these ideas were sketched out in sermons at All Souls and books. Um the world has changed uh some of it feels kind of quaintly old-fashioned this idea of you know meeting in the public square and and having a meeting of minds and sharing our our world views and, and finding common ground is any of this still relevant for today do you think do you think any of this has something to teach us as evangelicals in 2021 those of us who you know lived in the time after start well it is true that some of it some of Stott's teaching can seem um slightly old-fashioned uh, and even in some way naive i mean i remember very vividly him saying look we ha- we're a tiny minority in in the uk we have no right to impose our views on other people which is what often people complain but in a democratic society we do have the right to persuade to as he used to say to marshal arguments to 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 find ways and arguments to persuade people that the way of Christ and the way of Christian ethics is the best way for our society, for the common good. And I remember at the time thinking, gosh, this is this is wonderful, you know, and maybe what's going to happen is we're going to have a great outpouring of, of Christians in the public square and they're going to be able to persuade that, that Christian thinking is the best way forward for our society. Um, and now you know, having tried to do my bit of that and, and being many other people trying to do the same thing, you know, we, I look back over 40 years, 30, 40 years, and I think actually it's turned out to be much harder than 
I thought, than many of us thought, and that um, <clears throat> we've discovered that actually trying to persuade people in the public square and, and using arguments and evidence and so on is is very seems to be very much less effective than, than we imagined it would be uh, and, and has Stott um, persuaded us that it, that it would be. Um, does that mean that the whole enterprise is a waste of time? No, I don't think it is. And I, I'm still involved in, for instance, you know, personally, I'm very involved in national debates about abortion and, and euthanasia. There's likely to be a big national debate about euthanasia coming up in the UK later this year. And I am still very committed to this idea of marshalling arguments, of finding persuasive arguments in the public square to argue not on the basis that the Bible says that killing is wrong, but rather to say, look, here is this. These are the persuasive reasons as to why uh, legalizing mercy killing is not in the best interests of vulnerable people. So uh, I still believe in that vision, but I, I think I have learned that it that it it seems to be often it just doesn't seem to be as persuasive or to engage as one might expect. What strikes me when I look back at this is is it seems that Stott was very influenced by this very enlightenment view of rationality and of of the kind of the the human beings are fundamentally rational creatures. It's a very modern view, and I mean that not in a sense of contemporary, but I mean like of modernity, and and that maybe is of its moment in the that it was born in the 50s and 60s the idea that you know there's this public square where we all roughly agree the ba basic parameters and then the christian is there and the non-christian is there and they bring their best arguments and there is this clash of ideas and out of this respectful dialogue like truth can emerge and i look at society today which you know some people talk about as being postmodern, and the, the idea that there's a single objective truth which is derived from a, a well like a respectful dialogue in the public square is not central is not really how people work and when christians say you know the way the way we will we will build the church is by being really good at apologetics and by delivering outstanding 10 minute talks about the reliability of the new testament biblical documents i look at my non-christian friends and i say that's not going to persuade any of them they're not even really looking to be persuaded yeah, I, you've elided two different things there, Tim, to be honest, um, and, I, and they're not the same at all. Um, the first is about the role of rational arguments in the public square. And uh, you're right, I think, that the effect of postmodernism and many other factors in, in our culture recently has eroded that concept of, of, of rational, respectful debate. But I, I certainly would think it would be quite wrong to say, therefore, there is no place in it. I mean, the whole idea of a parliament, and parliament goes back way, way before the Enlightenment. Uh, the whole idea of a parliament is it's a, it's a safe place where people, instead of killing one another and, and exhorting, resorting to violence, actually discuss and debate and use rational and, and reasoned argumentation and uh, I think the public still want that what they complain about about Parliament is not that there's careful and thoughtful reasonable debate going on they care about the fact is Yabu sucks party politics uh, so I I think and so I think you're right that Stott certainly um, was building on 
liberal and post-enlightenment ideas of what a democracy is um, and arguing that in a democracy Christians have the right to to give reasoned arguments and that surely is correct and I think it's an em an, em an emphasis which is I think is, is sadly lacking so you know I've heard many Christians including Christian preachers and teachers say well look we're a tiny minority so we can't impose our views so there's nothing we can do you know which is a complete non sequitur which is what why Stott said yes we're a tiny minority but tiny minorities can have uh, enormous effects um, so in a democratic society and um, you know, to, but only if the other side are prepared to listen to you, if they actually grant you the space to make your case. Correct. That and that might have been true in the 60s, but are Christians granted the space to make their case, given it listened to fairly and respectfully today in the way that Stottian dialogue requires? Well, if they're not, democracy is dead and, you know, totalitarianism will triumph. And it may be, you know, in the light of history, you're right, that what we're looking at is the decaying days of democracy when it was when people concluded oh it was one of those nice enlightenment ideas and it just doesn't work and and power brute power as in Myanmar whoever controls the guns uh, is is rules the roost I don't think that's right and I don't think and this is where I would also want to push back because as I said theologically Stott's argument was not based on the Enlightenment, it was based on common grace, which is a reform, a reformation principle, and which goes all the way back to the early fathers in which you find in the Bible. So it, it um, I, I think, yes, our, our common, the, the common good arguments on which democratic society is, is often based are under threat but the creation remains the same in other words my opponent is still a human being and human beings are created to have reasons for their you know we are whether we like it or not we are not um irrational uh we every human being wants to have reasons for how they act and therefore rationality is the way that God has made us and and appealing to our common humanity and my desire I want to treat you as a human being but I'm asking that you treat me as a human being and and that that is the basis on which we can have a dialogue I don't think that's dead and I think therefore Christians should not retire from the public square uh, instead we should redouble our efforts to uh, to present a, a thoughtful reasoned uh, argument and so, you see, in your previous comment, Tim, you, you were implying that that was the same as apologetic arguments for God's existence. But that, I, I regard those as, as two quite different things. I, I think the modern trend to apologetics is open to the criticism that you make, and that is most people are not interested in those questions. But if you ask the questions which Stott was asking, what do we do about violence? What do we do about unemployment? What do we do about... Um, legal reform actually most people are interested in those things because they directly touch my life and so my experience is when I when I engage in the public arena in these with these kind of issues I don't get people saying oh that's totally irrelevant 
I got people saying, "Gosh, this is really important," but I don't agree with you. Uh, but I, so, so I, I would I want to draw that distinction between what is often called apologetics and what this engagement in the public square in the issues that really matter. mentioned this briefly but do you you know if it's, if someone was being totally blunt and this is obviously not all on John Stott's shoulders at all but he 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 spent decades trying to encourage Christians to do what you've described and it sounds wonderful and I'm all bought in but I look at the state of the church in 2021 in Britain and the state of the country and I look at the state of the church and the country in 1960 I don't see any signs of genuine success if anything it's gone backwards it, does that give you any pause to say, do you know what, we've we've had a stab at this Stottian engagement and double listening and, and salt being salt and light in incarnational mission for 60 years and it's made, you know, not much difference to the general decline that was already well underway at the time that he was he was preaching and teaching? Yeah, well, I mean, it it would be possible to be discouraged and and but i'm actually reminded of um a quote from quite well-known quote from gk chesterton who said the christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting it's been found difficult and left untried and i think you could say the same about the stottian vision of genuine respectful dialogue listening engagement I don't think that it is that everyone's tried this and said it doesn't work. I honestly think that most people have not tried it. It's it, it's too difficult. It's too costly. It's seen as dangerous. And and sociologically, you know, in 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 dangerous and threatening times, what what tends to happen? People retreat to into their bunkers, into their safe certainties because it's all too threatening and dangerous out there. And sociologically, we see across the world a sort of rise in fundamentalist ideas, including scientism, scientific fundamentalism. And I see the same process within the Christian church. There's a sort of retreat into the holy huddle, into the Christian bubble, a, a retreat into clericalism, that the most important things that are happening are within the four walls of the church and within the organization the establishment the established church and out there in in the public square it, it's just too dangerous too complicated too confusing um and um it's that kind of retreat i think um which i see that's an overstatement because one can't make those kind of sweeping generalizations about so many different things that are going on um you know because i would also point to the rise of, of christian involvement in in things like food banks and uh social involvement and adoption agencies and and, and lots of other areas where which are precisely the kind of engagement in modern society so it's a complex picture but i, I do think there is a wing of the conservative evangelical uh wing of the church which is where Stott had his roots which has gone back to a kind of reductionist and, and 
view of of the world and and a and a clericalism hmm. and how would you use kind of stott's teaching and legacy to challenge that in particular are there particular ideas that need renewing and and dusting off and being and being taught again in you know theological colleges or or from church pulpits how do we how do we bring the church away from some of those dead ends that you're talking about well i do think this idea of lay ministry and of the centrality of lay ministry so called i mean i think we probably need to find another word um but um i i that was what was so refreshing about Stott was that he empowered us instead of the implication yes you're all the sort of second-rate Christians and if you're really serious about Jesus you'll you'll get employed by a church what Stott's influence was suddenly wow you know I could be serving Christ as a Christian artist and as as a as a politician and as a as a nature conservationist and this would be just as much service for Christ as would be preaching the Bible that that view which i totally believe was very empowering um but i suspect it sounds it's 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 been largely lost um in in the increasing professionalism of of the church and i've had a whole number of um medical students and junior doctors implying to me you know thinking about giving up medicine and, and becoming a preacher because they say you know i really want to serve god and and uh, surely the way the best way to serve god is to become a preacher to touch on before we draw this to a close is you know we've just spent the last 30 odd 40 minutes uh, extolling the praises of and, and spending a lot of time talking about one man John Stott and I think it's impossible not to note that this centenary falls at a time when the evangelical church particularly here in the UK is has been reeling from a lot of uh, other pr- equally or not quite but very prominent figures being exposed as as abusers, as charlatans, as, as uh, lacking integrity in their personal lives. Do you think there is, does that give you any hesitation in kind of some of the hagiography of people like Stott? You know, when you think back to the, the, the Fletcher, the Smythe, the Zacharias scandals of recent times, should, should we be more hesitant about, about calling people's attention to examples of godly living and teaching like Stott? Yeah, it's a very important and uh, interesting question and of course in the context of you know these new revelations uh, and I'm currently trying to write a book about transforming friendship including my friendship with Stott inevitably I've gone back in in some detail uh, in my own memory about my relationship with Stott and also asking other people about you know is it possible that he was being manipulative and coercive uh, and some in some way abusive um, and I'm glad to say, you know, the honest truth is both from myself and from others, you know, many people who I've talked to who are close friends, that that I can't think of a single incident where I felt he was abusing or manipulating his position. I mean, it would have been very easy for him to do so. I mean, we all held him in enormous respect and regard. And, you know, if he'd wished to coerce us or manipulate us, uh, we would have... 
um, you know, been very vulnerable to that. But but in fact, it was almost like he bent over backwards not to do it. And when we asked him sometimes for advice, when I asked him for advice, he would sometimes say something like, well, I really don't feel that it's for me to tell you what to do, dear brother. Um, you know, you must make up your own mind. And, and so he almost bent over backwards not to be overly coercive. Um, but I, I do think, I mean, I do think hagiography is bad. And I do think there is a sort of fallen tendency amongst us all to put certain people on a pedestal and to say, well, look, you know, I realise I'm no use and I realise lots of these other people, but this person, this person is absolutely wonderful. And and I think that's not a healthy um, attitude. And it was one that Stott himself was always at great pains to try and destroy that, often by telling stories against himself and by and by speaking against the kind of adulation which he sometimes got and which other people got. So I, I do think we should resist that desire to put people on pedestals, to treat them as somehow special. But on the other hand, I do think we all need role models. We need to see people who are further on on the journey to Christ than we are. We need to be able to look at people and say, that is, you know, if I turned out a bit like that that would be a wonderful thing um and i just wish i could learn more from that person about what they know about the lord jesus and certainly the effect of start on on me and on many other people was just to make you hungry for what he had i mean every time i went away from spending time with him i knew that i couldn't be like him you know it was obvious he was in a different league and yet i found myself praying lord if i could just have a tiny little touch of of something about his life something about his his knowledge of Jesus and his desire to serve Jesus and how you could see the character of Jesus in his life if I could have a little touch of that that would, that would be wonderful so I think we do need people to that we can that are inspiring I mean you know in the apostle in the epistles Paul says copy me as I copy Christ so he was you know I, I don't feel that we should just say, well, you can't trust anybody. We're all fallen and we're all sinners, so don't don't trust anybody. That 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 can't be the right way forward. That all makes a lot of sense, but I had to be honest. When I, like, I think for me and a lot of other people in the church, I I feel so bruised by some of these scandals and so kind of numb and weary of like, you know, it's almost a case of who is it going to be next? You know, who is it next? Yeah who's going to break our hearts and be and be be turn out to not be who they thought who we thought they were that i think the instinct is is to stop looking and stop treating anyone as though they were had some some kind of model to to represent christ to us because it's just it's too risky it's too risky to spend a podcast talking about john stott because what if next year it emerges (laughs) turns out john stott wasn't who we thought he was and is is it are we just is that is that, do I need to resist that tension? Is that is that the wrong like lesson to learn from these ever increasing list of of fallen fallen heroes? Well, I mean, in a nutshell, yes, I think that is. I mean, I think I think if you really enter into that degree of cynicism and mistrust, then the evil one has has won. Um, you know, the hermeneutic of suspicion, which is so corrosive. It is not is not a godly thing. 
uh, this idea that you mistrust everybody, you mistrust, you never take anything as on on face value. You're always assuming there's some hidden, coercive, abusive, manipulative. Um, I I I think if we give way to that, then we we've allowed evil to sort of corrode the most basic trust. You know, because all human relationships are based on on trust. I mean, you trust your wife. I trust my wife. She trusts you. If if she was spending the whole time thinking, I bet Tim isn't really what he's <laughs> saying. I bet he really isn't honest. I bet he's really got a double life. You know, it would not it would not be possible to be, remain married. So all relationships are based on trust. It isn't blind trust, of course, you know, but but I I think our default position is is to be is to say that if people are revealing the fruits of the spirit in their life, you know, that's that's the test. It's about character. It's about behavior. It's not about giftedness. So we should be looking for role models from people whose character, who display in their lives Christ-like characteristics and the fruit of the Spirit. And the interesting thing that comes out of these scandals is that this would be true, I'm afraid, about Jonathan Fletcher and John Smythe and Ravi Zacharias, that there were, lots of people were deeply concerned at the time but suppressed their uh, concerns. So th- there were, I, there, there was evidence of deep, deep character flaws. There was evidence of things that were just completely in cons- uh, out of um, consonance you know, of the split between the external persona and the internal life. And and so obviously we need to be looking for those things. And when we see those things, when we see something which is glaringly inconsistent then I think we have to call it out. Or at least if we're not going to call it out, we have to make assumptions that that is a person not to be trusted. Mm. Um, so I think we, what it teaches us is is not to become deeply suspicious and cynical. It does teach us to look at character first and the fruit of the spirit and the way that people behave in private uh, more than um, the external, the persona, the image. And that actually ties in with with something that you've drawn out of of Stott's kind of model of engaging with the secular world is that it's it was absolutely it was partly a, it was partly about being prepared to master your arguments and speak persuasively for Christ in the public square to connect the unchanging gospel with the contemporary world. But it was also, as you talked about in that in about releasing lay people, it was about it was more than just words. It was about deeds too. And it was about living authentically and living attractively. And how, you know, for your context, it was about doctoring in a way that was Christ-like as well as speaking in a way that was Christ-like. So there isn't a disconnect. Um, and so much, I think, of what people, of what contemporary secular Western culture hates about Christianity is the stench of hypocrisy. And these exactly. scandals underline that. And what we therefore have to aim for is to, ha- is to have complete consonance between the words that we say and how we say that God is and what he thinks about the stuff, but also how we live in the ordinary everyday lives. No, that's exactly right. And that's why my own conviction is, as we move into the 21st century and on, on into it, that actually increasingly the reputation 
and spread of Christianity is going to depend on lay people, there's that word again, you know, the non-ordained, the non-professional, the non-employed, professionally employed Christians. It's that incarnation mission, partly because there is such mistrust about, and, 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 and as you say, the stench of hypocrisy, which of course is much more likely to happen to the, to the clerics than it is to the people working you know the ordinary joe is working on the on the shop floor and partly because when words become so decayed and distorted that they start to be meaningless we still have actions yes talking about jesus may become increasingly difficult but i can still live like jesus and the more we live like jesus the more other people will say actually i want to have something like that because that's what happened in the early church that was why the church grew it grew because ordinary people were showing the character of Christ um, as they did their ordinary jobs. Well, that feels like a good place to draw this conversation to a close. Thanks very much, John. It's been fascinating digging into the life and legacy of John Stott and toying with some of those ideas. Um, I look forward to uh, speaking to you again soon. Thanks very much. It's been great.